It's interesting how much of the Native American element just filters through. The mixture of cultures, you never know what's going to come of it. And from that, sometimes very interesting artistic things happen. Charlie Patton to Link Gray. Bobby Robinson invented the genre. Jimi Hendrix is the best in his field. You know, Jesse Ed Davis, everybody wanted him. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Our peoples were part of the origin story of blues and jazz and rock of American music, but we're left out of the story consistently from the beginning. Figuring out that these people were Indians and then we started to ask ourselves, why didn't anyone else know that? It's an American story. It's a human story. Don't break it apart. Hello and welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name is Jason Barnard. This podcast is a, a, a really pretty special one, actually, and uh, is a look at uh, a pivotal documentary that is out now and uh, available uh, to view. You've just heard uh, the track Link Ray and Rumble and a, a clip from uh, the film that we'll be talking about today. The subject of t- today's podcast is The Indians Who Rock the World Uh, which is a fantastic documentary about the role of Native Americans in popular music history. And I've got a huge privilege of uh, welcoming the director here today. Welcome, Catherine. Uh, You know, real privilege to speak to you. You know, I really enjoyed the documentary. It really does seem to address, you know, a tale that hasn't been heard in prominence until this film. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, It's a real pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, we, we... Almost uh, by accident, made a film that uh, had more importance than we knew, you know, in terms of uh, music history and in terms of the history of North America. Really, that's really what the film sort of hits on. It hits on things about our our collective history that we know through music. We all relate to music, and in that way, you know, we think of blues and jazz, and it conjures up certain images about history. And um, through that music we actually can learn so much about who we are and where we come from and that's what I found we we did in this film that we we learned I learned yeah yeah Link Ray uh, as an artist um you know really sets the scene and the the you know his guitar really does make that indelible mark on the history of music as as we hear in the film from Robbie Robertson himself yeah like there's there's a lot of um famous guitarists in the film like, or, or and musicians like Dan Auerbach, Slash, Robbie Robertson, Iggy Pop, all these people knew about Link Ray and his influence on rock and roll. He's I mean, he's the creator of the power chord. He brought that distinctive sound to guitar, that that um, rougher edge. That was him. That was Link Ray who brought that. And all these famous guitarists acknowledge that. They say he was the main influence there. It was him. And all guitarists know that, who uh, know know the history of music at all. They all know it. And all these famous guitarists came on board uh, for the film to say that. How did you manage to get such an amazing list of uh, musicians who basically talk about the the role that of the artists that you feature in the film. You know, it's a real tribute to those artists and and uh, you know the the filmmaking process. The artists featured in the film are 
tend to be, they were all influential, hugely influential on, on music. For instance, another artist is Charlie Patton, widely considered the father of the blues. You know, he's, he's the one, if you were to get a group of people together in a room and say, of, of, of blues uh, historians in a room, and they don't agree on anything, but they would agree on one thing. They would say that really the original blues uh, father of blues would uh, be Charlie Patton. And Charlie Patton is a quarter for sure, but probably up to a half Choctaw Indian from the South where uh, native people and black people were mixing uh, very closely, but native people had to hide their identity. So just telling you that story, that's one of the, one of the stories in the film. Uh, famous rock and roll musicians who, who, knew, who knew these stories or knew of these artists came on board for Rumble to help the world know. And we got those famous um, musicians via one of our executive producers. His name is Stevie Salas, and he is an Apache guitarist who, when Rod Stewart uh, was on tour, he chose him as his guitarist on one of his uh, huge big tours. And he was just out of high school by that point. And when um, Mick Jagger went solo, he chose him, him as his guitarist. So he's this amazing guitarist who grew up in the musical scene and um, knew a lot of people. He and another Mohawk, um, another uh, Native American fellow, a Mohawk from Six Nations in Canada, uh, came up with the idea to do an exhibit at the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian. Uh, the other man's name is Tim Johnson, and he was head of the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., this very prestigious museum, and they came up with the idea to do an exhibit on Rumble. Uh, well, they didn't call it Rumble. They called it Up Where We Belong, based on a Buffy St. Marie song, and Buffy St. Marie is a Native American uh, female singer who's really quite amazing. So they did the exhibit, and it was a huge success, and so they thought, oh, let's do a documentary, and they came to us to do it with them. So that's sort of the genesis of it, and it also tells you how we got all those famous musicians on board because Stevie uh, knew a lot of them and and just um, and had been telling them the story of the exhibit and then uh, telling them the story of these influential and artists who not everyone knew were were indigenous and so those famous people when they like oh my gosh okay I'm gonna come on board your film and help out and I have to say all the famous people that came on board they came on board without hesitation without complication without, you know, and they've got, you know, a thousand requests a day to be doing, <laughs> to be doing something, you know? So we were, we were really, really uh, appreciative that they came on board to help tell this story. That's great. So um, we're next playing a couple of uh, audio clips from the film. One way you, you've got footage of Link Ray himself talking about his own background and musical influence. And then, then we go into, you know, the stuff that really reinforces what you've been talking about, Catherine, where, which talks about the influence of, of that track, uh, Rumble in particular. Sounds good. My Shawnee mommy, she went out into the fields and was preaching to the blacks and to the Cherokee Indians and poor whites saying, you know, keep your morals high, believe in God, you know. And me and my brothers, we were singing, you know, will the circle be unbroken and all those gospel songs behind my mom, you know, when she, when she was out there preaching. I was uh, taught by a black man called Hambone, who uh, was raised up in the circus, and he could play everything, you know. And uh, he taught me how to play the blues, you know, and I started off from there, and then, my, and then I started paying bands, you know, to, to let me sit in with them so I could get better, you know. Were there early um, rock and roll influences? I mean, you were among... There was no rock and roll then. 
It's in the middle of the night and the radio's on and here comes the sound, you know, that makes you levitate out of bed about four feet. What is he doing? There's no sound like that. Nowhere on the air. It changed everything. Rumble made an indelible mark on the whole evolution of where rock and roll was going to go. And then I found out that he was an Indian. You mentioned this uh, slightly earlier, Catherine. There does seem to be a thread or connection throughout the film from artist to artist. Charlie Patton is not as well known as, you know, some of the bluesmen that came later. Was that, do you think that was because he was, you know, the innovator? Yeah, Charlie Patton was early. I mean, he was one of the, he's he's the one who trained Howlin' Wolf. He's the one who Sunhouse uh, copied. He's the one who really was the early, early first. And so his, he influenced all the ones that came afterwards that we know of that we, um, you know, Robert Johnson, we hear of all the ones that came later. But most blues historians agree he was the original first. You know, his guitar playing style was basically what Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters uh, took forward and in Chicago, you know, and up, up north in northern cities, and went, they went electric with it. And that is what came over here to England, which, the, you know, the Rolling Stones heard it. Uh, Led Zeppelin heard it. The early, you know, the early folks of those bands, they heard that when they were young and they, uh, they fell in love with that sound. That's basically those, what became the British invasion. That's them doing the blues. That's their version of the blues. When they hear Howlin' Wolf, that's what they're, that's what they're singing in their, in their own interpretation. Let's just even look at the Rolling Stones and, and Led Zeppelin. You know, Jimmy Page in the documentary, It Might Get Loud, is strumming to Link Ray. And, you know, he talks about, he, he was on his bed, you know, jumping up and down. He's 14 years old, playing guitar to Link Ray. Um, those guys, when they're young, that's who they heard. They heard the sound of Link Ray come over, and then they heard the blues. So Link Ray being, you know, distorted uh, power chord sound, and then the blues being all that the blues is. And those two influences really you want to look at it are two of the most important influences on rock music as we know it today and on the stones and Led Zeppelin and that whole scene. So, and those two influences are profoundly native American. They have a, and it's not to say there's not a huge black American part of all, all of blues music. Of course. I mean, there'd be no American music without African American people. That's for sure. But, and, and this is just a missing chapter, a missing part of that story. Because we know there were white people involved. We know there were black people involved in American music. What we didn't know is there's a profound Native American involvement as well. Fantastic. Well, let's hear uh, a short audio clip from the film which talks about that connection that leads right to the Rolling Stones. Love it. The big deal about Dockery is that Charlie was here for such a long time that people came to him and he took the time to teach them how to play. He taught Pop Staples how to play here as a child. Sun House was another one that, that came here and played. That Howlin' Wolf came here as a youngster. Man come through the plantation picking a guitar called Charlie Patton. And I liked the sound. Every night that I'd get off for of work, I'd go over to his house and he'd learn me how to pick the guitar. So I got good with it. 
the guy who basically took Patton's music into the electric realm. The Stones got Helen Wolf to come. You can see Brian Jones's face. He's just like, oh my God, we actually pulled this scam off and we got Helen Wolf to do the show. Tell us something about him, Brian. Well, when we first started playing together, we started playing because we wanted to play rhythm and blues, and Howling Wolf was one of our greatest idols, and it's a great pleasure to find he's been booked on this show tonight. It really is a pleasure. Thanks to Howling Jack Wolf. So I think it's about time you shut up and we had Howling Wolf on stage. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Let's get him on. Howling Wolf, bring him on. What's also touched on the film is is the role of Indians in the, the folk music scene, and um, we'll be hearing a clip which talks about Peter LaForge and Buffy St. Marie, who were pivotal pivotal songwriters in this era. But what does come across is artists such as Peter and Buffy St. Marie talking about the stories of the excluded, and that does seem to be a theme that really strikes home in terms of Native Americans in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a theme of banning throughout uh, the history of music in general. And, and a lot of the things that the songs that were banned, we, we, we hear about many of them in the film and like a lot of very important songs were banned in America. One Link Ray's song, Rumble, was banned and it doesn't even have any words. Buffy St. Marie's songs became banned as well. They, they, really the government administration of the United States, she found out later, wrote a letter to all the DJs in America saying, do not play this music. It's music that should be suppressed, threatening to the status quo. It's threatening to the mainstream. Do not play this music. She was effectively banned. She, Buffy St. Marie is an incredible songwriter. So after she was banned she uh, from commercial radio, and she, she didn't know she was banned, but she, there was just no interest. All of a sudden, she couldn't get any gigs. All of a sudden, she, you know, she was on big-time television. She was a big star, and then it all went away. So during the time when she was not being played over, let's say, a 20, 30-year period, she made her living writing songs. And she wrote some of the most beautiful uh, love songs in the American lexicon of that time. And she won an Oscar, in point of fact, for her song, Up Where We Belong. And I think it was for the the film An Officer and a Gentleman. Um, So she was an incredible songwriter. And when she came back, I guess when people no longer were worried about her influence when DJs, you know, new DJs were there. They forgot all about this banning. People started playing her again. And she has maintained such uh, a strong voice for Native American people. And because also during that time when she's writing all those love songs um, and, you know, making a, keeping her living, keeping a living that way, she was also touring and playing for Indian people, for Native people on reserve never forgetting where she came from and giving uh, hope and heart to, um, to, to, those, to those who, who were so oppressed by uh, the colonization of America. Mm-hmm. So let's say a short clip from the film and Buffy St. Marie's wonderful song, The Universal Soldier. I went to Greenwich Village and I was not in show business. I was a college girl on her way to India and I thought I would try my luck at singing. And it was folk music time. 
looks and its songs that we've been mistreated and wrong. All of a sudden, the streets were just alive with people with broader minds than the generation before. And it was just the perfect time for me. Uh, you know, if it had been a different time, I probably never would have had a career. At the essence, folk music is telling the stories of the day. And it's telling stories of the day of the people who are most of the time the most excluded, the most, the most uh, trampled upon. This is a song about a human being who is also an Indian. And if you don't remember his name, I think you may after this song. It's called Ira. For the 80s, for the singer-songwriters, Peter LaFarge was the man. He was addressing the reality we were going through and our attitude towards it. We were listening to each other's music. There was a real protest movement going on about Vietnam. Universe is soldier on, you know, I mean, she, she was an activist. She was the first woman of activism that had an audience. He's five foot two, and he's six feet four. He fights with missiles and with spears. He's only 31, and he's only 17. He's been a soldier for a thousand years. He's a Catholic, a Hindu, an atheist, a Jain, a Buddhist, and a Baptist and a Jew And he knows he shouldn't kill And he knows he always will kill you For me, my friend, and me for you And he's fighting for Canada He's fighting for France He's fighting for the USA And he's fighting for the Russians and he's fighting for Japan And he thinks we'll put an end to war this way And he's fighting for democracy He's fighting for the Reds He says it's for the peace of all He's the one who must decide Who's to live and who's to die And he never sees the writing on the walls but without him, how would Hitler have condemned him at Dachau? Without him, Caesar would have stood alone. He's the one who gives his body as a weapon to the war. And without him, all this killing can't go on. He's the universal soldier, and he really is to blame. But his orders come from far away no more They come from him and you and me And brothers, can't you see This is not the way we put an end to war And then Johnny Cash, the amazing Johnny Cash, he, he fell in love with the music of Peter Lafarge 
a, a very a little known um, folk artist in early New York uh, folk scene who, you know, the first person to get signed uh, to Columbia Records was not Bob Dylan, it was Peter Lafarge. And he uh, wrote music about how the plight of Native Americans at that time, with all their land uh, still being stolen yet again, and then uh, pollution and mining and forestry and all that, but uh, big hydro dams, all starting on the, the little land they were pushed off onto. Then there was a new assault during the 60s and 70s on that land again, and he wrote about it. And he wrote about, um, and so Johnny Cash loved Peter Lafarge, and he uh, made an album based on Peter Lafarge's songs called Bitter Tears. And that album was effectively banned throughout the United States. And this is Johnny Cash, who's like, you know, just come off uh, the hit Ring of Fire, one of the biggest hits of his career. He was in incredibly powerful and popular. And to have uh, even that popularity not not um, transcend into his this song, this, these songs on bitter tears about the plight of Native Americans being played is quite incredible. He nonetheless put that album out, and every DJ he put a he put a note in the album and sent it to every DJ throughout America. And, even, and when he was in a city, he would personally go hand it to them and say, "Why won't you play it?" And they said, "Well, it makes us feel guilty, and we don't want that." That album, though, the Bitter Tears album. It's having a resurgence. Apparently, it's been re-released, and uh, I would, you know, urge anybody to listen to it. Johnny Cash does an amazing job with these songs. As long as the moon shall rise, as long as the river flows. As long as the sun will shine As long as the grass shall grow The Senecas are an Indian tribe of the Iroquois Nation Down on the New York-Pennsylvania line You'll find their reservation after the U.S. Revolution, Corn Planter was a chief. He told the tribe these men they could trust. That was his true belief. He went down to Independence Hall, and there a treaty signed that promised peace with the USA and Indian rights combined. George Washington gave his signature. The government gave its hand. They said that now and forevermore that this was Indian land. As long as the moon shall rise As long as the river flows As long as the sun will shine As the grass shall grow On the Seneca Reservation There is much sadness now Washington's treaty has been broken And there is no hope, no how Across the Allegheny River They're throwing up a dam It will flood the Indian country A proud day for Uncle Sam 
It has broke the ancient treaty with a politician's grin. It will drown the Indian graveyards. Corn planter, can you swim? The earth is mother to the Senecas. They're trampling sacred ground. Change the mint green earth to black mud flats as honor hobbles down. As long as the moon shall rise. As long as the river flows. As long as the sun will shine, as long as the grass shall grow, the Iroquois Indians used to rule from Canada way south, but no one fears the Indians now and smiles a liar's mouth. The Senecas hired an expert to figure another site, but the great good army engineers said that he had no right. Although he showed them another plan and showed them another way, they laughed in his face and said, "No deal. Kinsua Dam is here to stay." Congress turned the Indians down, brushed off the Indians' plea, so the Senecas have renamed the dam. They call it Lake Perfidy. As long. As the moon shall rise, as long as the river flows, as long as the sun will shine, as long. As the grass shall grow, Washington, Adams, and Kennedy now hear their pledges ring. The treaties are safe; we'll keep our word. But what is that gurgling? It's a backwater from Perfidy Lake. It's rising all the time, over the homes and over the fields and over the promises fine. No boats will sail on Lake Perfidy. In winter, it will fill. In summer, it will be a swamp, and all the fish will kill. But the government of the USA has corrected George's vow. The father of our country must be wrong. What's an Indian, anyhow? As long as the moon shall rise, look up. As long. As the river flows, are you thirsty? As long as the sun will shine, my brother, are you warm? As long as the grass shall grow. What's Really interesting about the film as well is, you know, we get to hear from and about Jimi Hendrix and his, you know, Native American roots, which does really come strongly. And we, you know, we hear about the track here, "My Train Are Coming" as well, that that acoustic blues that he did. 
does really shine through on that song, but also in the film. And in addition to this, even more powerfully, it talks about the, you know, the strong connection between the African American community and the American Indians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, you know, Jimi Hendrix. We we his sister, Jimi Hendrix, and she told us all about his grand their grandmother, who's Cherokee, part Cherokee, uh, raised on a reservation. Um, performed in vaudeville, uh, was a vaudeville performer. And when she retired, she retired out, out west um, near Vancouver. And uh, Jimmy's dad, who was a, a landscaper in the summers, uh, he couldn't really, you know, take care of him. It was too much. He had to work, you know, dusk till dawn. Um, and so when, he was, when Jimmy, Jimmy was little, up until he was at least 10 or 11 or 12, every summer he went out and stayed with his grandmother. And she had this trunk in her attic filled with all her vaudeville clothes, but also with her fringe and feather and her, her, her native um, regalia and native um, outfits. And so Jimmy would try on all that stuff, try on the boas and the velvet and the fringe. And so he would, and, and he had a guitar that his dad gave him when he was very little. So you can now see a Jimi Hendrix trying all these things on and sort of having that flash and that incredible uh, dress that he had. You know, the way he dressed, it didn't come from, it didn't come out of, out of nowhere. That came as a direct influence from his, his grandmother. And he was very proud of his native roots and aware of them. But he was also very proud of his African-American roots and his Scottish. You know, on plantations in the South, there were, uh, for instance, on the Dockery Plantation, uh, there was lots of, lots and lots of uh, Native American people, black people and white people working on those plantations. And it's that combination of people who actually create the sound that we, we hear coming out of there. And that, so, so coming forward, particularly African Americans and Native Americans found common cause because of the terrible, I don't know if we can appreciate today, the terrible, terrible violence that occurred in the American South. The American South under Jim Crow, which were, which were basically laws after uh, slaves were set free, they made laws that were so harsh um, that uh, to, to not let African-Americans have any sort of leg up, like nothing. And Native Americans were at the same time getting taken off their land forcibly under what um, one name for the Cherokee March across America, being marched by force uh, to lands over in Oklahoma, were called the Trail of Tears. The ter- many, many died, and they were, you know, uh, they were um, turned on by the American government. All the treaties are broken, and by force. And for Native Americans, though, you had to, you couldn't. It was very dangerous to say you were Native American for those who. who on land or in the area, they um, they had to pretend they were black or white, depending on uh, what kind of skin color they had. But they certainly didn't want to say they were Native Americans, because if you did, you could be shot and killed, because that meant you still had a claim to the land if you were Native. So you, you didn't. You had to be quiet about it. And that's why we don't know of that influence, that Native American influence. But those who were there and those who still come forward to talk about it, who know those times, from, um, who, who, who know the Native American side of the story, have now told us, and they tell us in the film, 
what really went on in those times. And uh, those musicians were, yeah, they were influenced by, by, by all those influences in the South that would be African-American strongly, strongly influenced. Native, it's on Native American land, so they also uh, had an influence. And white people also had an influence. That's the truth about America and about music. It's when people come together that we create new things. So, you know, that, that, that's the, the real truth of, 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 um, of music, really, of new genres of music that happens because different people have come together. Well, let's hear about Jimi Hendrix's Native American roots and Hear My Train Are Coming. Well, what Jimmy was doing when he was playing Hear My Train Are Coming, it was for a television show, I think. No apps, no pedals, no wah-wahs, no tricks, no dancing and no playing with his teeth. And he's just bringing pure the power of the earth and history through him. He's bringing the Charlie Patton, you know, he's bringing uh, the Link Ray, he's bringing all those things up through him. Well, I knew he had music in him because when he was small, his daddy bought him a guitar, an old guitar for him to play on, you know, around with the boys. And, and so I knew he was musical, but I didn't know that he had that much music in him, you see. My grandma lived to be 100 years old, which is an amazing feat in itself, but um, her father was a slave, freed. Her mother was half Cherokee, and she grew up on the reservation, so she always kept that uh, memory of being proud of being Cherokee. Being part Native was very meaningful to my grandmother. She talked about that a lot and really instilled that in all of us, but especially Jimmy. Too bad, little girl's too bad 
make a whole lot of money Gonna be big, yeah Gonna be big, yeah I'm Gonna buy this town There's some fantastic clips and moments in the film especially the the moments where we we've got uh you know Robbie Robertson talking about touring with Dylan and of, obviously working in working then later with the band when they were recording on their own mhm Robbie Robertson is an incredible musician and I, and honestly he's such a good storyteller he grew up on a small reserve uh at Six Nations right near outside of Toronto over in that area near Niagara Falls and he spent all his summers there. And he said, all his cousins, all his aunts and all, they all play music. And so he was like, well, that's what you got to do. I mean, I've got to play music. So he started playing guitar at a very young age. And he um, he developed a guitar playing style that was really unique. And when Bob Dylan went electric on that famous tour, when he went electric with the band, he chose the band. That's who he chose to go electric with, was the band. You know, he was here he was. Bob Dylan was playing all the coffee houses and, you know, the folk scene. And, you know, finally the folk scene had accepted him. And then then, then he'd had enough of it. He was like, ugh, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to go electric. Because he heard the sound coming out of, um, you know, the R&B kind of sound, the, the rock sound coming out of, uh, at that time, Toronto was a really hot place. There was, all musicians say, at that moment, early 60s Toronto was something else it was really hopping and Robbie was playing there with um, the Hawks Robbie Robertson and the Hawks and they were so hot so that's who Bob Dylan chose to go with him when he went electric and they went on one of the greatest tours in history and really one of the most amazing rock tours in history and they were booed they were people threw things at them Every single show, like they thought Dylan's a traitor, politically a traitor, that he would go electric. Folk was supposed to be pure. It was a pure form of politics. People were so mad at him for going electric. But truthfully, we look back now and realize, wow, that was an amazing tour. Now that's where things are, sound like, like a Rolling Stone, Tambourine Man. That's the tour with those songs. And the evolution that, that Robbie led with the band continued, you know, into more rootsy sound, really getting back in, back to the earth. So, you know, as the whole world is going uh, into the huge rock sound, Robbie and the band did the opposite then. Then he said, you know what, we're going back to a rootsy sound. And then the band created songs that are really timeless American classics. And this is like the night they drove old Dixie down, up on Cripple Creek, these songs that, um, you know, we all know them and, and love them. That's Robbie Robertson as the, the writer. He wrote those songs. He's an incredible songwriter. And those are American classics that are feel as relevant today as they did when he wrote them. So let's hear about Robbie Robertson and the band and uh, let's hear the band themselves. But after a while... 
we got so we were doing it really well. And there was an attitude towards the music and uh, a violence and a dynamic and something that you just didn't hear anywhere else. And as that grew, I started to think, which is pretty bold, we're right and the world is wrong. entire industry got right back to songwriting and Robbie Robertson, one of the great songwriters of all time, had effectuated that change by, 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 by his own sensibility and, and, and the band's sensibility. It seems like at a time when everything was psychedelic and all this stuff, then the band came out and they kind of brought everything back to earth. I mean, Clapton wanted to be in the band, and George Harrison wanted to be in the band. Everybody wanted to be in the band.
Now, Catherine, uh, we get to hear about Jesse Ed Davis in the film. Um, He's worked with Taj Mahal and also later Jackson Brown. You know, we get to hear from artists such as Steven Tyler about the role that Jesse Ed played in influencing Steven Tyler, for example. Mm -hmm. Steven Tyler credits Jesse Ed Davis and Taj Mahal, their sound, their bluesy rock sound that they have. um, He credits them with influencing him, Steven Tyler, imagine. And he heard them, he goes, that's the kind of thing I want to play. And Jessia Davis was a, um, really literally my favorite of all the icons in the film. Wait till you, till people hear him play. He's, a, he's one of those guitarists. There's a, there's a guitarist in the film uh, named Derek Trucks. Um, he's considered one of the best guitarists in the world right now. And he talks about Jessie Ed being the kind of person who holds more back than he gives. He's so late, he lays it back. And I realize, you know, as I learn about music, that that's really, you know, it's it's one thing to sort of blurt it all out on your guitar and just like, wow, you know, which is, which, which Jimi Hendrix does, uh, you know, better than anyone, you know, better, better than anyone. He takes it up into a whole other level. But, you know, a lot of rock guitars, you know, try and uh, blurt it all out uh, on their guitar. And Jesse Ed, held it back he held it back and you could feel the all that was behind what he was what what he was holding back you could feel it in there and that's a real talent and guitarists who know know that Jesse Ed was was really some kind of talent you know he played with all the um uh all the Beatles uh in separately in their in their different uh, incarnations and uh, when they all did their their different solo bits they all loved Jesse Ed Davis. He had a sound and a style that really bridged black and white. You know, he just brought this funkiness, this um, a very unique sound that that um, you know white people couldn't get on their own. You know, they had to go import it from people like Jesse Ed. And so he was really known amongst all the rock aristocracy to be the guy who could really play. Marvellous. Let's hear uh, a clip from Rumble, which talks about how good Jesse Ed Davis was. I can't say enough about how valuable Jesse Davis was. He had a special touch, special sound for the blues, which which I love the way he played. When I listen to this solo, to this day, I, every note. But with Jesse Ed, you always felt like there was more in his back pocket. You, n- you never felt like you got everything he had. I particularly fell in love with Jesse Evan Davis because he was with Taj Mahal, and Taj's album is what spurred me to rock more. That, that touched something inside of me. So we're playing live at the Whiskey A Go-Go. I usually play my harmonica with my eyes closed 
And I happened to open them up in the middle and look down on the floor, and there's Mick Jagger dancing, there's Brian Jones dancing, there is Keith Richards dancing. And it was just one of the best times. It was just, it couldn't have been better. Now, Catherine, we're, we're moving to cut towards the last segment of the show here, but we're still talking about Jesse Ed Davis. And, you know, one of my favourite moments was, was talking about, was hearing Jackson Brown talking about Jesse Ed Davis and his role in, in, in Jackson's breakthrough track, Doctor My Eyes, you know, that wonderful guitar solo that he did. I mean, it's just, just a lovely moment. One of my favorite moments in the film is that moment as well. I, I love I love Jackson Brown telling the story of how Jesse Ed, how he was in the recording studio when they recorded the guitar uh, for Dr. My Eyes. Jackson Brown really became very close with Jesse Ed Davis. Uh, he was the best man at his wedding. They're, um, uh, they were really, really, really close. They became super close. And he really has a, has a love for, for him at a very deep level. But this is when they just first met. And it's um, it's just a, it's a classic Jesse story. He was very humble, but he also didn't um, play things that uh, he didn't hear himself on. You know what I mean? He wouldn't play just anything. He'd play where he knew he could play well for someone. Before we close by uh, hearing Jackson Brown and finishing with Doctor My Eyes, that wonderful song with the Jesse Ed Davis solo, Rumble the Indians Who Rock the World is is out on all the usual digital outlets now, and and people can just sort of. Google it and, and basically get themselves a copy or be able to see it now? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's all for, out for digital download and all, all the regular places like Amazon and I believe uh, YouTube. I don't even know. I don't even know all the places because it's different in every country, but it's out there. Absolutely. Just Google it and you'll be able to download it easily. This is only kind of one half of, of the film in terms of what we're hearing now. There's much more. There's... There's many more artists who, who are, you know, there's other artists that are covered. There's more, more people that are talking about this. Um, so this is, in, in essence, just a taste of what is, uh, you know, a fantastic film and, you know, award-winning film as well. Yeah. Well, it, it won the Masterful Storytelling Award at Sundance. And I have to say the, the probably the reason why it did is because there's such good storytellers in the film. Um, and, and, these, and these famous rock people are telling amazing stories too. I think people will, it's, you know, if you like music, um, you, and if you like rock music, blues music, um, there is a bit of jazz in it too. Um, but if you like, if you like that American music, you'll love this film and its influence on 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 you know br- British music. You'll you'll really like the film because the storytelling in it is is pretty awesome. It is. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's been a real privilege to to hear from you, and uh, you know it was a joy to watch what is a remarkable documentary that really just shed a light on a you know a part of musical history that is is not as known as it should be but i'm hoping it will be now through through the indians who rock the world so thank you thank you thank you so much for doing this thanks so much everyone when i was making my first record i thought you know like i get jesse had to play and 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 i called him and he listened to the song i had in mind from the play and he said i don't really hear myself playing on this you got anything else <laughs> i said yeah, well, okay, cue up that other song. <laughs> and, uh, and that other song was the song that he wound up playing on Dr. Mines. He played it once. I mean, he literally said, he listened to it for a minute. He said, okay, I can play this. I can play on this. And he goes, he says, just cue it up. And you know, he goes out and, he, and he's tuning his guitar while, I mean, I wound up just recording everything. He said, you better record everything. 
So he tunes up as he's getting to the solo. And he says, okay, that's a, that's a solo? Okay, he didn't listen to the how length of it like that. He's like, okay. And he played this solo once. My record comes out and he's shocked to find out that it's a hit. It's like a top 10 hit. Like he's all over the place. Everybody's saying, who is that guitar player? And people still want to play that solo if they play that song. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Patrons get access to unedited interviews as they're done, news, plus 
even access to my exclusive interview archive. All your support goes into keeping the show running and moving forward and getting amazing guests. To support me, just go to patreon.com forward slash strangebrewpod or click on the bright orange banner on the right hand side at thestrangebrew.co.uk. Thanks very much. Oh, yeah.